Good morning. Good morning. Welcome, Chris and Nicolette. Thank you for coming. What's up? <laughs> uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, would you please open up to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verses 7 to 18? We'll be looking at the whole passage this morning. Um, Oh, this is different with the mic here instead of on here. I gotta like stay right here. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been such a joy to hang out with you, uh, spend time getting to know you more, playing games and eating food and just being uh, reminded of the rest we can have in Christ. And I know he's not here, but I just wanted to say how thankful I am uh, for Pastor Jin, just how simply he laid out the gospel, how helpfully and illustratively he showed us of the rest and the beauty uh, we can have in Christ. So I just want to throw that out there. I don't know if there's like a pigeon we can throw towards him and send that message or something. But um, anyways, uh, so if you're there in your copy of God's word, um, let us hear now. We are going to stand. If you can stand for the reading of God's word. Reading from 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 to 18. Hear now God's word. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you um, for this weekend that we get to spend together um, being continually reminded um, by, by your messages um, of who you are, who we are, in you, um, though we are weak, though we are tired, and Father, you are strong and you work in spite of that. So we thank you and we pray that you would be with us now as we hear your word preached, that your spirit would illumine our minds, would help us to understand uh, the words that your servant Paul wrote down here, and that we would um, come to see your son more beautifully, come to cling to him uh, much stronger, knowing that he is all that we need. And Father, so we pray this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. Well, if you've ever uh, watched a boxing match, uh, you've, or maybe you've been to a boxing match, or maybe you've heard about boxing, you've probably seen uh, about a, a one-sided fight. A fight where as soon as the two people step into the ring, you already know who will win, and you'll kind of get a sense of who's better and who's worse. 
You can tell that the one who will most likely lose is just a little bit more bouncy, maybe a, a little bit more on edge, uh, just a little anxious, not sure of himself, kind of like shifting back and forth. Um, all week, this guy who's probably a little more anxious has been hearing about how great his opponent is, his defense, his skills, that he's never lost a fight before, that he's uh, got a great left hook and that he has all these things to worry about. And he's being pelted by ESPN and all the commentators saying, oh, this new guy, his defense, his offense is not, is not great. I don't think he's going to do well. And so he has all these things in his head. All the cards are stacked against him. And he's feeling like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to even make it through this fight. And so he gets in the ring and, and the opponent steps in. He starts making a plan in his head about, okay, coach told me uh, he's got a weak left hook, so I got to dodge that. And I got to make sure that I get this thing. And okay, and then all of a sudden, the bell rings and his opponent's already on him. And before he knows it, the punches are raining down on his head and he's being backed against the ropes. And he's like, I, I, don't, I don't even know what's going on right now. He's getting pummeled, he's getting backed into a corner and he's already losing the fight. He puts his gloves up to defend himself because that's all he can do. He can't, he can't throw a punch, he can't even make an advance. He literally just has to sit there in the corner trying to protect himself. He's got nothing to fight back with. He's completely hopeless. And each round, he, he makes it through. He just barely survives. He's uh, just sweating uh, profusely. He gets in the corner, and he's dreading the sound of the bell, waiting for that next round to come. He sits in the corner. His coach is trying to, to hype him up. He hears the crowd. He's, he's cut up. He's out of breath. His eyes are swollen. His head is pounding. The room is swirling, and he longs. He, he's really hoping that somehow, some way, the bell will be broken, that you know, they'll forget where the bell is, and, and he can just go home. Maybe I won't have to get out of the corner. Maybe I won't have to uh, you know, keep fighting this guy. Maybe they'll just let him win. They'll just say, okay, we, we can see you're not doing a very good job. Just let's stop it here, and, and then you can go home, and we'll just give the guy the money. And then as he's thinking that, he's hoping that the bell rings again, and the, the announcer says, round five, and he has to get up and fight. Now, we're being honest, though we've never boxed, or maybe you guys have, I don't know. I've never boxed. We know in some way what this experience is like. Everybody knows or will know or, or has known the feeling of being boxed into a corner, my life. Feeling like the underdog. Feeling completely out of your depths, like punches are raining down on you. Feeling like you barely had the strength to start the fight. And now that you're in it, you know you definitely don't have the strength. Whether it's work piling up on your desk and now it's spilling over into your life or relationship that has gone sour or has been broken or issues with your kids or friends a cancer diagnosis or continual bodily weakness where you feel like you can never quite recover. You're always fatigued, you're always tired. Or maybe it's even something you don't even know. You just feel the pressure of the world. Something out there is just oppressive. It just feels like it's too much. You feel pressed in, you feel knocked down, you feel beaten up. Uh, I've explained in the past, or I've talked about in the past, that. When I'm feeling this way, it's as if I've been in a long fight, I've been in for like 11 rounds, and now I'm just holding on the ropes, waiting for that last punch to come. I know it's gonna come. I can feel it, I know it's gonna come. But I don't have enough strength to defend against it, and if I'm being honest, I kind of don't want to defend against it. I would be, it would be much easier, I would much rather just give up and let life take me out, and let it win. 
And when you're feeling that and you lay your head down at night, grumbling and groaning as you get into bed, our thoughts immediately go to, it would make everything so much easier if I woke up in the morning and everything was just gone. If everything was just fixed. If I didn't have to go through this again. If my body was healed. If my relationship with my child or my friend or my spouse would be mended. And just as we're drifting off to sleep and saying, Lord, I don't know if I can make it through another day, we wake up and we hear a loud bell ring and an announcer shouts, round five. And we have to get up and get back up there. Well, this is you or was you or maybe about to be you. Paul in 2 Corinthians has some encouraging news. In this passage, we're reminded to not lose heart. Not because we're strong or able to push through, but because we are weak and God's power shines through. Because the message of Christianity, the message of the gospel is that we have life through death. Paul writes that it is through our weakness and even our death-like experiences that God demonstrates his surpassing power and sufficiency. And it is our hope in the glory to come, in the world to come, that we can have a sober-minded perspective about our suffering. Right now, Paul says that it's light and temporary affliction that weighs us down, but there's a whole weight of glory on the other side of history waiting for us. As Mike said us a little bit, maybe uh, it makes us feel a little uncomfortable, the fact that suffering is a reality, that we will suffer, that God uses our weakness and actually sometimes breaks us to show his power. Because we recognize that we are completely helpless, but that kind of, it sounds like God's not actually there to help. We don't feel like we're being helped out. How can Paul say to not lose heart? How can he say to, oh, it's only light and momentary affliction? Does he know what I'm going through? Does he know what suffering I've endured, what I have to continually be reminded of, continually wake up to in the morning? Really, our questions, our frustrations aren't, aren't being lobbed at Paul. We have our aim set directly on the one whom Paul is talking about. Really, what we're asking is, I thought God was supposed to be good. I thought he loved his children. Right now, it feels like I'll never get out of this. I will never get out of this fight. Has he forgotten me? Does he just not care about me? Obviously, I must have done something wrong to upset him or to, to be annoyed by me or frustrated by me so that he's no longer checking in on me anymore. He just sort of pushed me to the side. But friends, that couldn't be further from the truth. Paul here, speaking from experience himself, is saying that in spite of what's going on in your life, in spite of the suffering and pain and agony you are going through, God is not only in control, but he has a purpose for it. There's great comfort in that, and Paul is comforted by it. But that doesn't mean we won't suffer. The Bible is very clear that we as Christians will suffer. Jesus talks about it. The New Testament writers talk about it. Especially the Old Testament talks about it. But because God has a purpose for it, and he uses it to do his work, it means that we as Christians will be intimately familiar with suffering. I mean, doesn't Peter say in, in his first letter, chapter four, says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. As though something strange were happening, as if, oh, this isn't supposed to be the way life is. No, Paul is saying, Peter is saying, it should be expected. 
But then Paul is saying here, don't lose heart. How can he say that? He says, for a while our outside is wasting away, our body is dying, our inner self is being renewed day by day. There is something going on in our brokenness, in our weakness, in our suffering that God is doing that actually is renewing us and healing us and bringing us through. And isn't that what we really want? Don't we want to be renewed? Don't we want to be refreshed? Are we just waiting for the moment when we no longer have to strain and strive and work and sweat and struggle? How amazing would it be to know that one day, all this suffering, all this grief, all this sorrow, all these problems will will be redeemed and renewed? Well, that's what Paul's talking about here. I hope this morning after we've We've gone through the past three sessions. Pastor Jim has helped us walk through the rest that we can have in Christ, that we are united to our, our suffering Savior who is resurrected. We have hope in him. I hope that you will walk away knowing that though you suffer, though you are pressed in on all sides, though you feel beaten by life, it will never overtake you. It will not destroy you. God is working to renew you and sustain you even in this moment, even in the midst of your suffering until the end. And that's why Paul says, don't lose heart. So let's see how he gets there this morning. Let's see how we can say, don't lose heart in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials. So in this passage, um, I I see maybe three things. Uh, I was trying really hard not to be Westminster and have three points, but every time I prepare a sermon, it just ends up being three points. So there are three things about suffering and our attitude toward it. First, the certainty and perspective of it, of suffering. Second, the form or the way in which suffering occurs. And third, the hope and the, the, the weight of glory of suffering that we can look to in the future. So first, as I've already sort of been laying out this uh, prior to this, our suffering is inevitable. It is certain. Everything in this world is steadily and irreversibly wearing away. Everything created is falling apart. It's breaking down. Paul says in verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. The jars of clay are our bodies. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Clay pots are, are dirty, they're weak, they're very breakable, they're inexpensive, they're, they're ordinary. They're the things that you find in the, the rubble when people are doing archaeology. Those are the things that we find. This is the metaphor that Paul uses to talk about the body. You know, I'm sure some of us in this room right now, especially after the retreat, feel like clay pots. With how little sleep, how much activity, all the lamyang we were eating. <laughs> And then in verse 10, he continues on. He says that we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might also be manifested in our bodies. And then again, in verse 11, he says, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Again and again and again, he's reminding that we are being handed over to death as Christians. We're being broken. Our bodies are weak. We are clay pots. You know, our our hearts are not uh, an electric clock that beats on forever. Instead, our heart is wound up at birth and ticks away with a a finite amount of beats. There is an expiration date. From the moment we are born, we're given over to death. 
Even your skills are wasting away. You can't stay on top of your game. You can't always be reading the most recent article. You can't always stay in demand. And uh, Tim Keller says that even your heart's desires are wasting away. He says that everything your heart desires and most wants is like a wave on the sand. The minute that you experience, the minute that you get what your heart desires is the minute that it begins to recede away from you. You can't hold on to it, you can't keep it. No matter how much you try, like the sand that pulls back with the waves through your hands, your greatest desires, the things that you get do not remain forever. This life is one sorrow after another. Everything is falling apart. And yet we live in a culture that is uniquely focused on our values, uh, or uniquely focused on or values our strength, power, and independence in order to escape, to avoid suffering. Never in the history of the West or the United States before has our culture been so obsessed with trying to get away from the reality of suffering. Every iteration of our culture prior has in some way come to terms with the certainty of suffering and found ways to deal with it, but not now. Suffering is, is just another way of demonstrating your strength or ability or sustainability. It's a way to show off that you're not suffering. We're also told to just suffer through without showing emotion, ignoring it like, like a stoic or just grating your teeth or white knuckling your way through so you don't bother anyone or make yourself look weak. You are the answer to your problems. The world is out to get you and you need to fight in order to survive. Trust in yourself and you will make it through. But try as you might, you can try to make yourself look good. You can try to do that, but it really doesn't do anything for you. You know how exhausting that is. We can't help ourselves. We can't provide the rest we need, and we certainly cannot ultimately control our circumstances and sufferings. Clay pots cannot stop from being broken. You see, our bodies are, are weak, our bodies are fragile. At the drop of a hat, we can experience something so excruciating, so out of ordinary, we would have never dreamed of it. We would not expect it. We aren't as strong as we think we are. We try everything we can to convince ourselves that we are strong and able to fight, to try to fight off the punches coming in, and we can't. Well, this is you this morning. Maybe you think, oh, I can fight off. Maybe I can just depend on myself. I have strength enough. I want to encourage you to recognize your own weakness, your own inability to rescue yourself. Apart from Christ, there is no way for you to get out of the punches. The second you accept and understand that we are weak, we are clay pots, we are easily broken, is the second that we can begin to see and begin to trust and begin to cling to Christ as our rock amidst the waves that are hitting us over and over and over again. But Paul is telling us we are jars of clay. We are carrying the death of Jesus in our bodies. Suffering is certain. But he doesn't stop there. He continues on. He provides a personal roadmap. He provides a way in which suffering would or could or does look like. And that brings us to our second point. The form or the way of suffering that Paul lays out here. I'm going to take a step back. 2 Corinthians is written to a church where Paul's authority is being questioned. 
In essence, it's a response to, he's, he's writing a letter in response to people saying, you can't trust Paul. God isn't with him. He's suffering. He's been going through all this excessive amount of wrong things in his life. He's, he's experiencing all these different pains and agonies. How can he be an apostle? How can he be the one that's bringing the message of the gospel? And Paul, helping us out, we get a small glimpse into what they're talking about as Paul lists out the various things. Let me just, in 2 Corinthians 11, I'm not going to read it out, but just some of the things that he's experiencing. He was imprisoned. He was beaten. He was chased out of towns. He was shipwrecked. He was stoned. He experiences anxiety. He is constantly in danger. And then he says, who is weak and I'm not weaker? They just say, who is, who is weaker than me? Paul. And people are saying, in response to that, how could God be with a man when all that stuff is happening? Surely, when God is with you, you have to prosper. Everything has to go well. Everything has to be good. I've been traveling the Mediterranean my whole life. I've never been shipwrecked. Is Paul just that bad at steering a ship? How come he's had such a hard life? Or maybe we can look at the, the book of Job um, and the terrible counsel he receives from his friends. Everything was going wrong for Job. He loses everything. And what do they say? Job, there is something wrong here. If God is with you, this wouldn't happen. God must not care about you. God must not love you enough. God must not be doing something. Or you've done something wrong. This is all your fault, Job. I'm sure there's some of us in this room that when you get into one of those seasons where uh, maybe things keep going wrong and you reach the bottom and you find out that there's actually a latch and a bigger pit beneath. You think, this can't be right. Either there's, there is no God, or he's out on vacation, or God is mad at me. Maybe I've done something to uh, frustrate him. He can't be with me. I must have done something. And how does Paul respond to that? How does he respond to the statement in this whole letter, if God is with you, then all the suffering wouldn't be happening. If you're with God, or if God is with you, you must prosper. He responds this way. And this is really the... the the paradoxical nature of Christianity. Paul says, sufferings are not only a not a denial of the gospel, but actually they are a confirmation of the gospel. He says as much in verses 11 to 12, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, the life in you. The way the gospel works is that it's death leading to resurrection. Weakness leading to triumph and exaltation. The way the gospel worked in Jesus' life of his being born in a manger and humiliation, going through suffering, going through the passion, and leading to his resurrection is the way it works in Paul's life. He's talking about his suffering. Just as for Jesus' suffering and his death led to a greater life, Living in Jesus, the same, the same sort of thing happens for Paul. There is a pattern, death, pain, agony, leading to great life, leading to the surpassing power of God. How is that possible? What, what is going on here? Well, it's because Christianity doesn't begin with our, our understanding of suffering anywhere else but in Christ. 
It doesn't locate it in someone who has gone through a lot and so has life experience to pull from. It doesn't locate it in the wisdom of the world, nor does it locate it in the culture that we consume. None of that captures the true essence and foundation of how we should consider our suffering. What Paul is showing us here is that to understand our suffering, to understand what it means to carry around the death of Christ in our bodies, we must understand that the one whom we are united to, the one who has made us sons and daughters of God, suffer greatly on our behalf. The framework for our understanding, our perspective of suffering is not that we suffer on our own for ourselves, but that Christ suffered himself for us. Understanding suffering at its core means that we must identify ourselves with the one who suffered on our behalf. And if we identify ourselves with Jesus, then we can begin to get a grasp of how and why and, and the way in which we suffer. And you say, okay, well, that's great, but I only see Jesus suffering in like really big ways, really like extreme, like he's just, he dies on the cross, he's bearing the weight of you know, sin, uh, sin and shame and guilt, but you know, he doesn't suffer in these little tiny ways that I'm going through. He, he, he can't really experience what I'm going through. And I think we've sterilized or maybe boxed up Jesus' suffering to not be as expansive as we think it is. When we take a step back and look at Jesus' life, we are met with a man who is well acquainted with the biggest suffering to the smallest suffering. Every single toil of this life. He was born in a manger with animals. He was born into poverty. Grew up most likely being misunderstood. Was constantly berated by religious leaders. He was questioned and doubted. Tempted in the wilderness by Satan, pushed out of towns, sought after only for what he could give. He prayed so hard that he sweat blood, was betrayed by his friends, abandoned by his followers, was mocked, went through an unfair trial. He was passed over as an innocent man so that a murderer could go free, was beaten, whipped, flogged, abused, wore a crown of thorns. Not to mention he was doing all this while knowingly staring down the barrel of the cross. And then he's nailed to the cross, suffers the greatest shame and pain, being hung as a criminal, was forsaken by his father, and finally dies a death that people cheered over. And this is even taking into consideration the spiritual suffering and the weight of, uh, of bearing the guilt and shame and misery and sin, bearing the full wrath of the father. This is the Lord that we follow. This is who our lives are founded upon. This is who... Uh, this is who Paul is talking about when he says we are carrying around the death of Christ in our lives. This is the topsy-turvy, upside-down reality of the gospel. So when someone says, or Paul is being accused of God not being with him because he's suffering, Paul says, no, look at our Savior. Our Savior is the one who suffered the greatest. To be a Christian as identified with Christ in his death, it means that we will suffer. But just as we carry around the death of Christ in our bodies, Paul recognizes and freely admits that we also carry around the life of Christ. The gospel is not just about suffering and humiliation and death, but it leads somewhere. It's going somewhere. Unlike the rest of the world that can only sit in the middle of suffering, in the middle of pain, in the middle of agony, the gospel, because of Jesus' resurrection after death, gives us this hope that though we are weak, though we are beaten, though we are knocked down, this is not the end. If this was a sermon that didn't have the gospel, I would have just 
kept talking about how much we suffer, how much life sucks, how much we're just broken, and there's nothing we can do about it. But that's not the gospel. There's something more. There's actually a way in which we are moving. And really, it's a strange thing that we think about it, that the weaker and more beaten down we are, the more that we experience suffering as Christians, the more God's grace and mercy shines through. We can feel pressed in on all sides, feel like the walls are caving in, like the punches are coming in from every side, and yet we can agree with Paul, says in verse 8 and 9, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Somehow, some way, God uses our weakness, our frailty, our dependence, to not only demonstrate his great power, but also to produce life in us. To redeem our weakness. To redeem our suffering. You know, the, the amazing thing about an acorn, we're, we're out here in the woods. Um, I was out on a run yesterday morning and I was stepping on all these acorns. And I was thinking, you know, the amazing thing is that inside that little seed, each, inside each little seed that fits in the palm of your hand, is an entire tree, basically. However God made it, all the essential parts uh, of that bi- of the big oak trees, oh, actually, I don't know what kind of trees these are. Um, all these trees uh, we see all around us, um, they're packed in this little thing that can fit into your pocket. But it's not unless it falls that it can work. The acorn needs to be broken. It needs to uh, be torn open and thrown into the dirt in order that the life found in the tree can spring forth. You know what? Every human soul is made in the image of God. We're like little acorns. We have the capacity for, for great character, for compassion, for love, for endurance, for reflecting the image of God. But it won't be released. There will not be resurrection without death, except through the death of suffering, difficulties, and trials. So we see that our being broken, our carrying around the death of Christ, is actually the very way in which God brings about his great life in us and to those around us. And it's for this reason, so that we can't boast in ourselves or point to the one who put his surpassing power in weak jars of clay. And how do I know it will really work? Verses 13 to 14 tell us, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Since Jesus was raised from the dead, it's a reality, it's a historical fact. It's the very meaning of history. Everything in history points to Jesus' death and resurrection. Since he was raised from the dead, life comes out of death. Out of devastation comes redemption. Out of brokenness comes God's great mercy, power, and grace. If our being broken means that life comes through it, it means that our suffering, the things that we're going through, our bodily weakness, it has a purpose. It has a meaning. It's not just dropping out of nowhere. It's not God being capricious and, and hating us or ignoring us. For those who are believers and trust in Christ, our lives, though marked, yes, by suffering, sometimes great, sometimes small, 
Our lives are heading toward life. So Paul says, don't lose heart. And this brings us quickly to our third point as we look at the hope and future of suffering. David Powelson, most of us probably know who that is, uh, a well-known biblical counselor, theologian, a thinker, really the guy who uh, kind of made CCF the way it is today, or at least is sort of the legacy of CCF, said this one quote in a video lecture uh, that really struck a chord with me. If you know uh, anything about his life, if you know kind of what was going on, you know that he suffered from and died of pancreatic cancer. Not only that, but just as a person, from what I've heard, he's kind of weak, he's a little bit fatigued all the time, he was tired. He was someone who was well acquainted with the wear and tear of life, of being pressed in on all sides. The weight of daily dying of the body. And yet, in spite of all that, here's what he says is an encouragement and hope, and the hope that he held onto in the midst of his suffering. He says, someday, you will be strong and healthy forever. You will be alive forever. No more death, no more decrepitude, disability, sickness, disease, weakness, bad eyes, diabetes, cancer, nagging fears of Alzheimer's. You will be healthy forever. Or to put it another way, as Paul does in verses 16 to 17, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Someday this pain and agony we are facing will be done forever. Not because we're strong, not because we're wise or we're skilled enough, but because we are united to a Savior who made it so we would have to be raised with Him. He has secured us. The gospel engulfs suffering. It doesn't ignore it. It doesn't push it to the side. It doesn't downplay it. None of those options provide any hope. The only true hope we can have is knowing that our suffering and bodily weakness and death and dying are all wrapped up and fulfilled in Christ. The gospel is not that we're just going to heaven to be compensated for the things that we've lost. Not just someone giving back the same broken and weak body that we had before. That's not the ultimate hope we have, not just returning what we had already, but the future, the new heavens and new earth, is not just a compensation, but a restoration, a renewal of the world and everything we've wanted. It changes our perspective on suffering. The Christian hope is not just evening out when we die. The Christian hope is that there is a far weightier glory on the other side. You gotta fix your eyes on it, you gotta Think about it. You've got to think about it until it pulverizes your discouragement. Literally, Paul describes creation as groaning for this restoration in Romans 8. You don't just accept suffering because you know God doesn't want it or avoid it because you realize how God can use it. You don't embrace it. suffering because you recognize it's not right, it's evil, but look how he's worked out in Jesus Christ so that even evil will be an eventual servant for our good and not good. C.S. Lewis, in closing, describes this waiting, this hoping, this looking forward this way. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. 
Someday, God willing, we shall get in. We shall get into the place that no longer has tears, no longer has anxiety, no longer has stress, no longer has disappointment and sickness, cancer, disease, broken relationships. So we do not lose heart. We are beaten, but not destroyed. Afflicted in all types of ways, but not despairing. Pressed in on all sides, but not knocked down. Friends, this is the peace and comfort and rest we can have in Christ. It cannot be found anywhere else. The world can only provide counterfeits, can provide potential helps, but they never fully satisfy. Only by our being united to Christ in his death and resurrection may we have hope in knowing that though we are experiencing pain now, we will one day be in a far weightier place of glory. Though we are jars of clay, God's gospel shines even brighter in the face of weakness. It points us, it reorients us to a greater perspective in a more beautiful And though we are daily dying, we're also at the same time being renewed daily in our soul, that we may cling to Christ, trust in him, endure through even the greatest suffering. Do you believe this? Do you know the Savior who provides rest in death and in life? Come to him. Fix your eyes on him. He is all that you need. Verses 17 and 18 say, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal way of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the hope that we have in Christ. Though we are wasting away, though our bodies are daily dying, we have a hope knowing that one day this will not be the way it was for us.